This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband, and here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am delighted to be joined simultaneously by two guests. A.J. Levine is a professor of New Testament studies at Vanderbilt University and a self-described, quote, Yankee Jewish feminist who teaches in a predominantly Protestant divinity school in the buckle of the Bible Belt. She has produced lectures on the Old and the New Testaments for the teaching company and is the author of several books on Jesus. Mark Brettler is a professor of Jewish studies at Duke University and has co-authored with A.J. the Jewish Annotated New Testament. He has written the book, How to Read the Bible, which sounds like an essential read for anybody interested in the subjects covered in the rabbi's husband, and has written and spoken widely from the forward to NPR in the United States and Israel. There is a term for a boxer being pound for pound the best fighter. If the same concept existed in literature, I believe that word for word, the best book ever written would be the book of Jonah. It is shorter than a newspaper column, and yet has captivated audiences for 3,000 years due to both its engrossing story and the eternal lessons of truth, mercy, repentance, and so much else that it surfaces. So when AJ and Mark suggested that we speak about the book of Jonah, I was excited. So AJ and Mark, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Thank you very much. So uh, tell us briefly um, about the book of Jonah, which is fewer than 900 words, and uh, what it means for you and what it should mean for all of us. I think you gave a great summary of the book. It's a remarkable short story. It is a very unusual short story in the Bible, not only in terms of its length, but in terms of its structure, which is so incredibly beautiful. Uh, The book really folds in half. Jonah has an initial mission, which he does not follow through on. That's in the first chapter. And that mission, ultimately, he ends up with non-Israelite sailors. Then in the second chapter, he finds himself in the midst of a great big fish. Well, finally, after he's disgorged from the fish, everything starts over again. And indeed, the beginning of chapter three is almost identical with the beginning of chapter one. And this time, he fulfills his mission, going to different foreigners, to the city of Nineveh. And that mission is much more successful than the one in chapter one. And finally, chapter four, in a rather complex way, brings the entire book to a conclusion where Jonah, in chapter two, he was a loner in the belly of a great big fish. In chapter four, he's a loner sitting outside of the city of Nineveh, and he has a different sort of conversation with God in that chapter. Then the book is brought to a close with some very, very strange notions. The last word of the book, the last two word Hebrew words of the book are and a whole lot of animals. And indeed, one of the many strange features of the book is that it's filled with animals. The big fish, for example, or many of your listeners might not know, the name of the city of Nineveh itself means a fish. And that is how the cuneiform sign for the city is written. And then, again, the theme that you have 
really comes on very strongly at the end of the book, where God says, Should I not have pity or should I not care about Nineveh, the great city? This is a book about care. It's a book about divine care. But also there, the city of Nineveh is called Ha'ir Ha'gidolah, the big city. And one of the ways in which biblical books convey their message is by repetition. And in the 48 short verses of the book of Jonah, the word gadol, big or great in some form, appears a total of 14 times. And that certainly tells us something about this book, perhaps that it is overblown or big in a certain way. I was, I was just thinking, you look at the book as, as a big deal. And the problem is that the only big deal that's come into contemporary culture is the big fish. And people don't recognize what the text itself is doing within its own historical context. A number of people are aware of it only through its New Testament appropriations because it shows up in the Gospels. And Jews and Christians read the text quite differently with uh, fundamentalists trying to figure out exactly how Jonah got in the fish because it must be true to part of the Jewish reception history, which recognizes the story is a profound meditation on issues of repentance and responsibility. And at the same time, it's rollickingly funny because the Jewish tradition is very well aware that you can laugh and be indicted. You can laugh and be instructed all at the same time. Well, it's so interesting. Um, Michael Oren was a guest on The Rabbi's Husband actually twice. And the second time the other night, he was he said the short story is a Jewish medium. And one of the proofs of that was Jonah is the original short story. And it's the great Jewish story because, AJ, you're so right. It is just a terrific narrative that's so captivating while teaching us so many lessons. And Mark, you talked about the prevalence of fish. And I didn't even know Nineveh was a fish. But one thing that all children's literature seems to have in common is prevalence of animals. There's something about children's books and animals that the author of the book of Jonah seemed to know. I think so. I mean, we really have no idea who the original audience of the book was, but I think it really was written for many audiences. It's something that different people can appreciate at different levels. On one hand, yeah, it could be seen as a simple story of Jonah being swallowed by a big fish. And I'm really happy you've not said the word whale, because only in the English tradition does it eventually become a whale. In the Jewish tradition, in the Hebrew tradition, it really is a big fish. But in many ways, it's a very, very sophisticated story. And by the way, I'll just add to Michael Oren's piece that it's sort of a toss-up between Jonah and Ruth as the original short stories. And I'll just say another connection between those two books, not only in terms of their lengths and the way in which they're set out, a connection that's incredibly important. These are probably the two biblical books that are most friendly toward foreigners, which is something that is incredibly important to remember in today's situation and something that very often gets lost. And that's not only a children's lesson, that is very much an adult lesson. And I'll even say that something that many adults don't realize is that the theology of Jonah is not such a simple theology, because ultimately, when the Ninevites hear that they're being condemned, they do not say, oh, yes, we are going to repent and everything is going to get better. But they say in Jonah chapter 3, verse 9, 
Who knows, but that God may turn and relent. He may turn back from his wrath so that we do not perish. You know, maybe later we'll return to that verse. There's a whole lot of interesting commentary on it, but the theology is really important. It is not an assumption. This is what we're thinking thinking about. We're taping this sort of the day before Rosh Hashanah, that often the notion that many people have is you pray, you repent, you give charity, and everything is going to go well for you. But the theology of that verse, beginning with the two Hebrew words, mi odea, who knows, is a much more complex theology where you do not assume automatically that if you behave properly, that everything will go well for you. Right. And, and, and you, you mentioned before about Nineveh meaning fish. Nineveh was also probably the capital of Assyria, which was an extremely evil empire in ancient times that was really a terror state. And the ancient literature of Nineveh tells about how they would take captives, cut off both legs and one arm so they could mockingly shake hands with the victim as he died. And this was just typical for what they did. And here Jonah is sent in to ask the Ninevites, who were the enemy of the Jews, to repent. So he doesn't want to do it. Yeah, I mean, I would go even further than that. Both AJ and I do not see this book as a historical book. And there are ways that as biblical scholars were able to date biblical texts. There's a very strange phrase in the book of Jonah, and that is the phrase Melech Nineveh, the king of Nineveh. That would be like saying the president of Washington, D.C. And this is a phrase which, with other pieces of evidence, suggests that the book was written many centuries after Nineveh was destroyed in the late 7th century BCE. And what's remarkable about the author of this book is he chose the arch enemies of the northern kingdom of Israel. He made them into the people who repented even better than the Israelites. And they really serve ultimately as an example for what God not must, but can do if people repent And that is why the book is so popular within Judaism and plays such a strong part, such a prominent part within the high holiday services as the culminating prophetic reading in the afternoon of Yom Kippur. Right. Now, uh, Tim Keller, in his magnificent book on Jonah, and he's also done some videos with her, so worth watching on Jonah. He said, Jonah going to the king of Nineveh and asking them to repent would be like a rabbi going into Berlin in 1941 and asking the Germans to repent. Is that an apt analogy? He doesn't quite go to the king. He just he just walks into the city and, and issues a five-word proclamation. Five words, right. And he doesn't even say repent. It's just, you know, when, and actually there's text critical question about how long it's going to take, but wake up, guys, your, your country is going to be destroyed. Making it even more problematic on this whole repentance and interrelationship thing, um, there, there actually was, although the book itself is fictional, there was a real prophet named Jonah. His name is Jonah, son of Amittai, and he lived during the reign of King Jeroboam II. So we're, we're in the middle of the 8th century. I'm mean, a time of national expansion. You know, most prophets say, repent or take care of the poor. And Jonas, this this go-to guy who says, yeah, everything is terrific, let's expand. And what happens, his preaching prompts the repentance of Nineveh. Had Nineveh not repented, had Nineveh been destroyed, then it would not have been the very people 
the very nationality, the Assyrians, Jonah's own country would not have been destroyed had Nineveh been destroyed in the first place. So all this material about repentance is really hard because you can repent one day and be completely sincere. And 50 years later, you can be this horrible empire that goes and destroys other people. So Jonah is responsible for their being saved, uh, not being destroyed on the one hand. And on the other hand, Jonah is partially responsible in a strange way for the destruction of his own people. I think you just got to the heart of why this story is so complicated. Was Jonah right or was God right? Because the whole story is about Jonah not wanting to do the mission. And Jonah's the son of Amitai. He's the son of truth. As the son of truth, he's not so comfortable with mercy. He doesn't want to do the mission because he seems to be thinking, if I ask them to repent and they do repent and God gives them mercy, it's not going to stick. And they're going to resume their terrible ways. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. He, in that sense, was right. It's possible. But it's, it's, and here's the cool thing about, about looking at Jewish texts is you can have more than one reading and they can both be right. Totally. Right. He may be concerned about the future. And that's one rabbinic lens on. Of course, he didn't want Nineveh to repent because he was a prophet. He knew what was going to happen. On the other hand, Jonah may want them to be destroyed because if they're destroyed, then he's the fabulous prophet who got up and said, you're going to be destroyed. If they survive, where's his credibility? So Jonah may be interested in preserving his people. He's also just a remarkably whiny, passive-aggressive, self-centered prophet who may want to see this destruction because it makes him look like a great prophet who got it right. Although he didn't want to go on a mission at all. I mean, he, he ran, now Tarshish, I believe, was as far from Nineveh as was conceived in the ancient times. One was furthest to the east, one was furthest to the west. In the Reader's Digest Bible, there actually is such a thing. I think it's translated something like to the end of the end of the world, which is a terrible literal translation, but is a great capturing of what this is about. And just to go back on what you're saying for a second, most people think that the Bible gives answers. The Bible often raises questions, and you really presented it more or less as who's right? Is God right or is Jonah right? But the book ends with a question, and we're not sure if it's a real question, if it's a rhetorical question. How do you read it? Is it a real question or a rhetorical question? Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I go back and forth. It depends on the day that I'm reading it. And, you know, you talked about not being sure, and you talked about the name of Jonah's father being truth, Amitai, which comes from the word emet, but also remind you in terms of the animal themes of the book. Is it an accident that the protagonist of the book is named Yonah, the dove, and is sort of flitting here and there, just like the message of the book is flitting here and there? We're not really sure exactly what it means, but that's what makes some biblical books great, that you can't pin it down to precise meanings, either what it meant originally or in terms of what... Jewish and Christian tradition later did with us. Now, doesn't uh, dove in the, in the Hebrew imagination refer to faithfulness? It can, but I'm not sure. Because like, that would be ironic. That could, that could be one of the things that it refers to. You know, also in the Song of Songs, the Yonah, the dove, is considered to be very beautiful, the eyes of the dove and so forth. But I, again, think this is part of the whole, I, I sort of said is a, joke that I think the book of Jonah was written by a veterinarian, but there is something really going on here with all the animals in the books. And I'll point out, this is something that most readers miss out on, 
it is not only the people of Nineveh who repent, but it's the animals who cover themselves with sackcloths. Something quite remarkable is going on in this book. Yes. What do you make of that? I mean, part of it's certainly a satire. Like, like a great satire, it enlarges the characters and enlarges the situation to make us understand what it is. is. Is that what the animals repenting and dressed in sackcloth is, or is it something else? Well, it's overdone. It's big. It's big. It's big. It's big. Um, but, you know, it also reminds you, just to take that, that dove image one step farther, um, it reminds you of Noah and the world being destroyed and all this water and then the dove. I mean, so it's basically repurposing or reusing symbols that are already out there saying, you think this is the sign of peace? Well, this particular Jonah, the prophet, he's not terribly dove-like. He's really quite hawkish. So you go back and you put the story of Jonah over against the story of Noah. And what do you, do you want the destruction? Do you not want the destruction? Do you care more about the animals than you care about the people? And the text keeps raising all these wonderful questions that little children can launch onto, but adults will wrestle with them as well. I know. And I think this is what George Will once said about baseball. He, he said, I love baseball because children and adults can both appreciate it, but in very different ways. It's the same thing about the book of Jonah, although the book of Jonah is not a children's book. I mean, this is one of the most profound meditations on the great themes of life ever conceived in 900 words. Now, I know the book of Jonah is of extraordinary importance to Christians. There is in the New Testament reference to the sign of Jonah, and sometimes it's just left open and sometimes we get a gloss on it. Jonah, from very early on, when we start getting Christian art and architecture in the third century, end of third, beginning of the fourth centuries, Jonah becomes a sign of resurrection as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. So Jesus was in the earth for three days. So Jonah becomes a symbol of resurrection. You can actually find Christian sarcophagi, Christian coffins with depictions of Jonah on them. But in the New Testament also, Jonah becomes an ethnic issue. The people of Nineveh, these pagans, right? These Gentiles repented, and therefore they indict the Jews, as the New Testament would have it, for not repenting. So both Judaism and Christianity see Jonah as a book about repenting, but in the synagogue, it's our book, it's in our canon, and we recognize it as a story of repentance, and therefore we read it on Yom Kippur. But in Christian context, sometimes it's looked at as, oh, we Christians are doing so much better than you Jews which is not a very good reading because obviously, or it should be obvious, Jesus and all of his followers originally were Jews anyway. So to cite the book of Jonah, a Jew talking to other Jews, will have a different valence than if we look at Jesus as being the first Christian, talking to a group of people who are not his own people. So how do both Christians and Jews, or Christians or Jews, deal with the fact that this repentance didn't stick and it had evil and catastrophic consequences for the Jews? And not in a nationalistic sense. I mean, this was the most evil kingdom of its time, which continued after the story was said to have happened, not when it was written, but after it said to have happened. And that the implication is maybe Jonah was right to reject the mission and maybe God was wrong. Most Jewish and Christian audiences are not going to go there because God usually gets a pass on things, right? So yes, what you can do is you can say, you can argue with God. You should have destroyed this. And on the other hand, you say, but... What this generation does is not necessarily what the next generation does. And why would you condemn an entire country if it's their political leaders who are who are doing the evil? This brings us back again to the flood. Was everybody responsible? Or to Sodom and Gomorrah, was absolutely everybody responsible? If I know that you are a wonderful person, but God forbid your child does something awful, do I kill you? Absolutely not. Right. 
Let me stop you there, AJ. I mean, absolutely not according to the position that wins in the Hebrew Bible and in rabbinic tradition, because another central chapter that you have in the Hebrew Bible is Ezekiel chapter 18, which is the chapter that deals with intergenerational sin. And that is the chapter that says, Each person dies for his own sin. But you certainly have earlier biblical notions of intergenerational sin being passed on from generation to generation. So the absolutely not, I would say, is the latest and is the strongest voice within the Hebrew Bible and within Judaism. But other voices do exist as well. But if there is a chapter five in, jo- in, in the book of Jonah, I think it would be Jonah saying, this repentance is not real. It's not going to stick. And, and nobody repents with one crazy looking guy coming into a city, issuing five words. And then all of a sudden the king and, and every subject and even the animals have uh, sackcloth and ashes. Jonah's going to say, this is a fake repentance. They said a few words. They don't mean it. It's not going to stick. It's not going to stick in the next generation. It's not going to stick in this generation. They're going to resume their evil ways tomorrow. And he would have been right. There is nothing, to to go back to Mark's earlier point, there's nothing that says, if you know what the future generation is going to do, you kill the present generation. So that's not there. Does sin go through the generations? Even though each person bears the burden of his or her own sin, um, there is this this ongoing thing. I mean, we're seeing it right now in the United States with questions about what had been done in the past coming up to impact us, and what we do today will certainly impact our kids. But how do you assess repentance? That's a really hard question. So the person who comes into the synagogue on Yom Kippur or virtually zooms in, depending upon whether your shul is open or not, and fully repents and fully feels it and makes the the New Year's resolution, as it were, to be a better person, that person may be entirely sincere. Three weeks later, it might be back to normal. So the warning is the responsibility of the rest of the community. We are commanded as Jews that if, if, if we see a, a fellow Jew doing something wrong, we're supposed to step in and say, come on, get back on the right path. That's, that's what love your neighbor as yourself means is to keep your neighbor on the straight and narrow. The whole question about who has a legitimate repentance is a fraught question. And it's fraught not only in Judaism, it's also fraught in Christianity, lest, as Christians would say, there's a sense of cheap grace here. You know, now that, now that I've accepted Jesus. I-, I love that expression. Diedrich Bonifar. Bonifar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, AJ, I think you just surfaced another great question from the text, is the text causes us to ask, what is genuine repentance? Right. And one way you can see that is if you say you repent, then, then you have to go fix it. Right. It's not enough to walk around in sackcloth and say, look, you know, look at me, I'm repentant. Go go fix the problem. There's a lovely, quite farcical midrash we find um, later on in rabbinic literature that suggests that they realized that they had stolen certain things. So they dismantled all the building. I have it, but it's so good. Let me quote it. You read it because it's really funny. Oh, good. I don't I don't know it. Good. All repented from their evil ways and return to their owners, even lost objects found in fields, vineyards, marketplaces, or streets. And when they found stolen bricks in the royal palace, they tore down the royal palace and returned the bricks to the rightful owners. And any vineyard that had two stolen seedlings or two stolen trees, they uprooted them and returned them to the owner. And if you don't think that's enough, if a garment contained two strands of stolen thread, they unraveled it and returned the thread to their owner. And they did this looking, if they found that there was stolen property, 
they would search a deed going back 35 generations back to the time of Noah and find a descendant of that person who hid the property and returned it to its owners. I mean, so at least in that view, these are truly righteous people. Yeah, they're also homeless. I love your notion. Yeah, it's a great story. I mean, it really typifies the creativity of the rabbis. But Mark, I love your notion of creating a Jonah chapter five, even though it will destroy the lovely symmetry of the book of Jonah. And there's no clear answer to what it should look like. I mean, I'd love, you know, maybe you gave me a good idea for an assignment for my students competing Jonah chapter five. I would love to read what they come up with. Yeah, yeah. What would Jonah chapter five be? I I think it would be Jonah arguing with God, just like Moses argues with God and Abraham argues with God. I think Jonah would argue with God. His passive aggressive arguments don't seem to work. So in my Jonah chapter five, he's bringing out his, he's learning from Moses, he's learning from Abraham and, and he's being direct and truthful and he's making the case. And I don't know what happens in chapter six, but that's chapter five. You were talking before about this is an adult story, and it very much is. But there's there's a part of this whole question at the end that, that I, I actually think kids can wrestle with because kids aren't stupid and kids have a moral sense. So if you say to a kid, um, here's a bully, Ninve, bully city, and, and you finally say to this bully, unless you straighten out, bad things are going to happen. You're going to get yanked out of school and you're going to lose all your privilege and no more ice cream and no more video games and you're done. And the bully says, okay. I'm really sorry. You're the kid who was bullied. What do you want to see happen? Do you want that bully still to lose all of his privileges? That's a child's question because kids can wrestle with it, but adults still need to wrestle with it as well. You did something that was absolutely horrible. You defaced a synagogue. You sprayed a swastika on or something. You get caught. You say, I'm really sorry. Should you have to pay reparations? And then we move on. What is the responsibility for having done evil if you repent of your ways? But in the book of Jonah, the Ninevites only did what you said before. They only put on sackcloth and ashes. They never did anything to correct, or they couldn't have corrected a lot of it because their acts were so horrible, but they never made any attempts to bring material help to people they harmed. Right. There's no attempt to fix it, but there's no notion that they didn't either. Absence of evidence is not the same thing as evidence of absence. You have to be careful. Jonah 3.8, it says, let everyone turn back from his evil ways and from the injustice of which he is guilty. And it says two verses later that God saw what they did, how they were turning back from their evil ways. So this seems not to be a case of only external stuff. Of only, so it was not a purely spiritual moment. You know, there's an active effort, but think about the, they're kind of like Jonah. As Mark pointed out, Jonah gets a do-over. So chapter three, you get a do-over. Well, how come, why don't the Ninevites get a do-over? It's the same thing. And if Jonah gets the chance, why not the Ninevites accept? Yeah, and and to pick up there, in some sense, chapter three is a do-over of chapter one, in the sense that chapter one, it primes you to realize that other people, especially non-Israelites, are better repenting than you are. The sailors act tremendously properly. They're the heroes of the book. Yeah, in chapter one, they try to return to the dry land. The chapter ends with, the men feared the Lord greatly. By the way, that's another great. So, you know, non-Israelites 
can fear God just as much or more than Israelites in chapter one, in which the sailors, obviously, they're scared to death by the storm. But what they're doing seems to be very sincere, really can lead readers to believe that what the people of Nineveh are doing is very sincere in chapter three. Right. Absolutely. And it's such a fascinating book. And thank you for bringing out so many of its uh, endlessly profound lessons and teachings, both for children and adults, that this great book offers. Um, So the concluding question on the the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And the first page of the book, he says, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So in all of your years of both studying the Bible and teaching it to generations of young people, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? I think humanity has an infinite imagination so that just when we think we've got everything down about a text that we've been studying for well over half a century and that we've read everything there is to say about this text, an undergraduate will come up with a question that we hadn't thought of or come up with a reading that is completely new because they're reading from their own subject position. They're reading from their own experiences, this capacity. For infinite imagination and infinite creativity, I think, is there, even though it sometimes gets stifled because the educational process can be recite back to me what I've told you rather than develop your own theory and and work it out in group. So I want to celebrate that human imagination. That's in part why Jonah remains so interesting. When Mark and I wrote the Bible with and without Jesus, just looking at how Jews and Christians have looked at the same text so differently. Again, enormous capacity for imagination. Beautiful. Mark, Mark, how about you? Yeah, and with that, an enormous capacity to change and to think differently. So when A.J. and I co-edited the Jewish Annotated New Testament, there were many people who said, why would a Jew possibly want to write about the New Testament? How is that relevant for us in any way? And for many people, It was an entry into reading the New Testament, and all of a sudden, they learned a lot about themselves. They learned a lot about their neighbors, and they learned that they really can read a book, which they were afraid to read. And that's another ability to change that I very much appreciated, that people often have stereotypes about the Bible, whether it's the Jewish Bible or the larger Christian Bible or just the New Testament. And these stereotypes typically come from not reading the biblical text, or often from reading it in a very polemical way. And what A.J. and I are trying to do in so much of our teaching, but especially in the new book, The Bible Within and Without Jesus, is to see that there are many ways to read the Bible, many ways to read both the Jewish Bible and the Christian Bible, and that even though many people are trying to lead us to believe that the world is a zero-sum game, that you really are either on the side of the winners, and if you're not on the side of the winner, you are a big loser. No, there are many different ways of reading the same text, and we really can learn to respect each other through the same text, even read differently. Well, there are 70 faces to the Torah. Yes. So uh, tell us, uh, just before we conclude, uh, about your uh, forthcoming book, The Bible With and Without Jesus. Uh, Is it available now? When's it coming out? Uh, What's it about? It's coming out in October. 
We have a chapter on Jonas, and we really like our chapter on Jonas. We're delighted to be able to talk. We oh, I can't wait to read it. So much, so much more to say. But what we did is we looked at the major passages from the scriptures of Israel, what the church would call the Old Testament, the synagogue would call the Tanakh, uh, that get used in the New Testament, either on the lips of Jesus or describing his birth or um, describing his suffering or various Psalms that get appropriated the creation story, to see what would those stories have meant in their original context. So like, what was the book of Jonah doing when it was first written? And how were its readers understanding it at the time? How these particular books or passages were looked at in other types of Second Temple Judaism, say, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls, or Josephus, or Philo, or, or books that didn't make it into anybody's canon. How does the New Testament use them? And then we push forward into post-biblical Judaism to see how rabbinic Jews have read these passages and how medieval Jews like Maimonides have read these passages to say that just because of the New Testament says Jesus did something to fulfill, it doesn't mean that that original text loses its meaning. It has ongoing meaning. And at the end of every chapter, we put these Jewish readings and these Christian readings together to say, what might these ancient scriptures still be saying? to people today, whether it's the book of Jonah or uh, a prediction of a young woman who is, who is pregnant and will have a child, or the idea of a person who suffers on behalf of the nation. These stories have to have ongoing meaning so that for Christians, what the New Testament says remains in place. We're not doing anything to take away Christian theology. All of that stays in place, but we're broadening out and for Jews, we're introducing Jewish readers to what their Christian neighbors have done with texts that we share, because in some cases, a text that's really important in Christianity gets almost no traction in Judaism. And in other cases, a text that's really important in Judaism, you rarely hear in the Christian church. Well, it's so interesting you say that, because one thing I've noticed, even when people choose what episodes they want to do on the rabbi's husband, is that Jewish teaching and Jewish scholars seem to focus on, obviously, the five books of Moses and then on the Talmud, but there's not that much Jewish commentary on the Psalms, the Proverbs, and the Prophets compared to the Christians. Like even if you just go to um, Apple Podcasts and you put in Jonah, almost all of it's from Christian sources, which is not surprising given just who's commented on what. So why is that? Why has there been relatively little Jewish commentary on the Psalms, the Prophets, and the Proverbs where the Christians have focused on it a lot more? At least on Psalms, there's a fair amount of Jewish commentary, but it was certainly on prophets, there is not a whole lot. A lot of it has to do with just what is important within the liturgical year and within the lectionary, that Jews hear the Torah read once every year or once every three years, depending on your movement, on the movement that you're affiliated with. And thus, it is much more central than other texts. You know, the book of Job is never read in Jewish tradition. So that is partially responsible for that. But, but let me just go back to AJ's point for one minute and just add one thing to it and maybe bring us back full circle to the book of Jonah with which we started or which we focused. I mean, another thing that we try to do in this book is to show different religious communities how the same book is important for them for very different reasons. So for the Christian community, the book of Jonah is important for a variety of reasons, including the fact that Jonah is seen as prefiguring Jesus, and Jonah in the belly of the big fish is seen as prefiguring the death and then resurrection of Jesus. 
you ask Jews about the story of Jonah, that's the last thing they would say about it. Well, for Christians, it would be the first. For Jews, the book is very much about repentance. So one of the things that we also try to show there is how the same book is understood in different ways in different communities, and different communities pick up on different elements of the book, making them greater, while other elements tend to get lost. And with the book of Jonah, Jews don't believe it actually happened in history, or we don't care. Whereas in Christian, in, in a lot, not all, but a lot of Christian thinking will focus on how might this have actually happened in the 19th century? There were stories about somebody who was in the belly of a fish or a whale and lived there for three days. And Jews never think or talk about things like that. Well, I've learned never to use the word never, but it's rarely, rarely much within Judaism. Although I must say, one of the most beautiful illustrations of Jonah, and I mean quite literally an illustration of Jonah, is from the synagogue floor from Chukok, which is fifth century of the common era in the Galilee, which not only shows Jonah being swallowed by a fish, but because of some linguistic peculiarities in the book of Jonah, Jonah is swallowed by a fish, which is swallowed by a fish, which is swallowed by a fish. That's the male-female peculiarities? Yes. So they certainly seem to at least visually take it literally. I think the difference may be that um, where some Jews, of course, will take it literally, because, because as Mark said, you, you, when it comes to Jews, you're not going to get uniformity pretty much anywhere. But the idea is the Jewish tradition will always say, but what does this text mean to me? So to leave it on, to, to focus on that historical thing is, is going to be insufficient. You've got to bring it forward. To go back to how we read it differently, Jews will hear the entire book at one sitting, and that will not happen in a Christian context. So if you look at the lectionary, which is the Parsha HaShavur for Christians in mainline churches, they'll get a a couple of verses from a chapter here, and then a couple of Sundays later, they'll get a couple of verses from a chapter here. And we don't read books alone, so we'll read Jonah, but we'll also have a Torah reading to go with it, and we'll have Psalms to go with it. And the church will have its own connections with gospel readings and readings from Paul and so on. So we get it even delivered differently. Um, It's in the synagogue chanted in Hebrew, as opposed to a church read out loud in the vernacular from a book. So even the aesthetic of it is different. Right. Well, thank you so much for such a fascinating discussion. God, I wish I was in your classes. but uh, your students are very blessed. And, uh, and I, I can't wait to read uh, The Bible With and Without Jesus, which will be available in October. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you for your great question. Thank you. This is great. Thank you. Thank you.